Hello, this is David Perlman for Conversations at the Whole Notes this week of October 11, 2016. And uh, my guest is Ivars Torrens, who's the uh, music director and conductor of Tafel Music Baroque Choir. Is chamber that? Choir, Tafel Music Chamber Choir. Yes. Tafel Music Chamber Choir. Yeah. Um, and we're just going to ramble about Tafel Music and the choir particularly, which is in its 35th season. That's right, it's uh, hard to believe. Yeah. Um, so, a first question, um, just to get it rolling. What's it with viola players who go on to be music directors? It is quite a phenomenon, isn't it? Um, I think, and I've talked to a number of them. Simon Stretfield was my mentor uh, when I was a student. And, of course, he was a violist, founding, founding member of the St. Car- uh, uh, Martin, Martin in the Fields. Yeah. And we were talking about this, and he said that when you're a violist, uh, you're hearing, if singing in an orchestra, you're hearing stuff from the middle. Right. And apparently Bach liked it best when he sat in the middle and, and played viola. Mozart played viola. Beethoven played viola. Um, I'm sure they played violin as well, but you get a different perspective on what's going on around you. The parts aren't usually... <laughs> That's crazy. But violinists tend to be busy with uh, being up there on the melody. They're a little bit more competitive. They've got high notes. It's like this intense... uh, They're in in the stratosphere up there. And um, uh, violists and I think trombonists are kind of in the middle earth. Uh (laughs) Servant of the people. Yes, and a a kind of a, a, a more... Uh, well-rounded attitude towards life, shall we say, in music making. Uh-huh. But you do hear things in a different way. You're able to hear what's happening with your colleagues next to you in, in the cellos and basses, and then you've got the seconds next to you, or maybe they're across from you, or whatever. But you're part, you're part of the whole rather than sitting on top of it. Right. And uh, certainly as a conductor, therefore... Uh, that's what you're you're doing when you look at a full score. You're trying to read, read it, the whole scope of it, not just the top and b- the bottom. And if you are already familiar with the inner workings of the middle, mm-hmm. uh, then then it makes it a lot easier. You're you're hearing the whole. You're you're interested in what's going on in the whole. Right. So yes, that phenomenon seems to exist. That that violists. I don't think it's from lack of employment right. <laughs> but but it is a phenomenon that crops up and again and again and as i say in throughout history you you see it occurring uh, with composers as well so you started as a violist with tafel music that's right founding yeah. member uh so how many years ago is that that the, would be uh it was 1979 mm-hmm. that uh we had our first concert down at Holy Trinity, next right. to Eden Center. And it was an experiment uh, by this uh, uh, group led by Kenny Salway and, and Susan Graves, who had mm-hmm. a, it was called a, a chamber music collective kind of 
first, mm-hmm. and then they came up with this idea of a group called Tauf Musik on period instruments, mm-hmm. and they wanted to expand it to create um, the first Baroque orchestra concert in so, Toronto. So it was seven years before the choir emerged? No, just two. Just two? 1981 is when I formed the choir. Oh, 81. Yep. Right, my math is not <laughs> <That's okay>. so good. <laughs> I'm a viola, so my math isn't good. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You know, we make up the jokes ourselves. The viola jokes <laughs> yeah. are all made up by violists. Absolutely, yeah, it's so. called self-defense. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, I was asked to take part in this experiment of uh, Baroque orchestra on period instruments. First one in, you know, homegrown. And it flew. It was great. But it was in June of 79. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was about to head off to Holland Mm -hmm. to study for a year, as was my wife, Charlotte Nettiger. Right. Harpsichord. Yeah, she's a harpsichordist of Tafmusik and uh, many other things as well Mm -hmm. within the organization. And so uh, she was sitting in the audience for this first concert. She wasn't playing yet um, in the group. And then we went off to study for a year Mm -hmm. in Holland, the Mecca, one of the Mecca spots for Baroque studies. Mm -hmm. And while I was over there, uh, I got the invitation, when I return, would I like to be the the full-time violist in it? There had been another violist in there who uh, decided he didn't want to stay on, so Mm -hmm. they offered me the the, uh, position. And at that time, it was, of course, the only violist because it was a small group, five violins, one viola, one cello, uh, violone or bass, uh, harpsichord, two oboes, and one bassoon. Huh. And it's just phenomenal to think of where this organization has gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years after, after I first played in Tauf Musik, Kenny Solway had this idea that uh, he'd like to create a choir as well. Right. Um, because if you think about it, the the heart of 17th and 18th century, well, 19th century, we already have the symphony. Right. But in the 17th and 18th century, the heart of all this repertoire really comes from the church, mm-hmm. the Catholic church. All, and you think of the passions, the masses that occur, uh, mm-hmm. the requiem masses, um, motets, you name it. It's, it is the central focal point, I think, musically. Mm-hmm. Even though, ch- of course, you have chamber music and, and dance music and this and that, it's still kind of the core element of this music. And to avoid doing choral music uh, seemed to be uh, uh, sort of just, therefore, not diving right in. Right. So uh, he knew I had an interest in working with voices. I I sort of developed this already when I was in grade three uh, of of... Uh, this fascination with voices and with words in music. And so he asked whether I would like to create a choir. Grade three? Uh, grade three I started, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, uh, we were learning international folk songs. Oh, yeah. And so there were a group of us, little quintet uh, of us, who thought, well, we like singing together. And there was a school open open parents night right and they had various things going on so we uh sang our folk songs mm-hmm. in a group i remember playing bongos <laughs> someone else was strumming the guitar we sang polish folk songs and 
um, then we get to pick a costume. Right. Now I have I'm of Latvian right. background, but to hell with that. I decided I wouldn't be a Scot. Oh. So <laughs> I got myself a kilt of some sort uh-huh. or another. And so, yeah, that was the beginnings of my whole interest in working with other people. Uh-huh. If you will, yes, directing them, organizing them. Right. Um, and that went right through primary school, right into uh, senior public and high school as well um, with this little group many of them stayed on so mm-hmm. we were so, so how long did it take to get uh, dressing up in fa- in fancy costumes back into tafel music well, for you <laughs> yes I, I see where you're coming from yes it's good um, <laughs> yes well actually i've always had an interested interest in uh, period costume uh-huh. actually period anything right. anything from the 17th 18th century uh, how they dressed what they ate uh, the decorative arts, all of this, and the whole thing with the the now famous or infamous, whichever way you look at it, uh, Tafelmusik sing along. Oh, Messiah. I think famous is the right okay. word. Well, yes, it's a phenomenon. Sure. It's like the Rocky Horror, <laughs> the Rocky Horror Picture, picture Show, show yes, of the of, period. Yes, yeah. Messiahs. Um, I actually the the idea was being batted around of of doing a sing along. Messiah. We were already doing four uh, concerts mm-hmm. of of Messiah at Trinity St. Paul's. Yeah, and um, our manager at the time, Audie Lockie, uh, said, "Well, what about doing a sing along? No one's doing it in the city. Toronto Symphony had done them, right? But quite some time earlier, under uh, Sir Ernest McMillan, mm-hmm. and um, so she said, "Well, what about?" And I was going, oh, "I don't know," and just sort of. Partly a joke, partly maybe to put her off the idea. I said, "Well, I'll I'll accept the idea of of doing this if you let me get dressed up as Handel." Uh-huh. And she said, "What a brilliant idea!" <laughs> so my goose was Called cooked. You on it, yes, yeah. <laughs> and so there I did, there I went. And of course, I couldn't just with the first first couple of years. We were uh, I was renting from. Uh, Malabars or, or COC, <laughs> right? And it could be any kind of hand-me-down from yeah. Don Giovanni or Amadeus. Right. But there was this part of me, this historically informed part of me, performance practice, you know, that said, "This, this isn't jiving with really what, what mm. I should be wearing or what handle wore." So I also had some background in uh, tailoring oh, that yeah. came from my father. Um, and uh, who was a, as a youth, was a tailor's apprentice in, uh, in a DP camp uh-huh. in, in um, uh, Schleswig-Holstein. But anyway, so I had this knack, and I thought, well, I have this interest in period costume. Why don't I try doing something? So over the next few seasons, little by little, first I made the shirt, then I made the vest, then I finally, I had the entire costume made by hand uh-huh. myself for Mr. Handel. Rumors have it even the underwear... Well, th- there is a fat suit uh-huh. involved, which, of course, Handel didn't have to worry about. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, but the rumors are not correct about not correct. the period underwear. No. Oh, okay. No. But I, right. I, I am seen to be hovering around the uh, women's stockings, tights section, uh, a certain time of year looking for the perfect, you know, dove gray uh-huh. stockings for Mr. Handel. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, 
so before before we get to the the sing along Messiah and the Messiah, this thirty fifth, mm. ha, have you given? Is there particular attention to the thirty five year history in terms of what you've chosen for repertoire this year? Is there some kind of a yes you know, nod to different stages in the choirs? Yeah. And and really, it's uh, if you will a retrospective of those pieces that we really love doing in the choir, and also some something new, something old, something new. Yeah. Um, and because in other anniversary seasons, uh, we've done other kinds of exploration. Uh, mm-hmm. There was one anniversary where, um, just because of the work we were doing. Uh, with Soundstreams, uh, collaborations with Soundstreams, but also my own interests. We did a program where we, well, I called it putting uh, composers of different periods into uh, a hall of mirrors. Right. And so I did Brahms motets next to Bach motets. I did Poulenc sacred works next to Charpentier. Mm-hmm. And to show the connections between certain composers who were looking back and those that really really were were looking to another generation in terms of what -hmm. they were creating Um, but this season uh, with the 35th anniversary we are picking some beloved pieces uh, uh, and different countries as well so we have uh, a Rameau motet um, which is a, a wonderful tour de force not only for the choir, but for the orchestra and for our guest soloists. Mm-hmm. And it really is, in a way, the epitome of French style in choral music. Um, yeah, it, it, is, it is appetizer, main course, and dessert all rolled into one. Then we have Handel as mm-hmm. well, uh, a motet, uh, Laudati Pueri, uh, a psalm. Uh, setting, sorry, and um, that is uh, showing Handel, but it's showing Handel in Italy when mm-hmm. he was a young man, and uh, the pieces that he wrote there and kind of blasted everyone out of the water, including all the Italians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was he was writing Italian music better than the Italians. So this is all in the first concert that that's we, right that we're the talking first, about yeah that's in, in the november second to fifth yeah we might as well get in the yes, good, plug good. for the concert yes. right you know away. the dates i don't i just get ready for november second to fifth <laughs> i believe yes okay. <laughs> till sixth S- oh sixth the sunday sixth is the okay. sunday right yeah. <laughs> um so ramo and then uh handel mm-hmm. and then zelenka uh-huh. and as our marking department always said in the past, Zelenka, who? <laughs> you right. know? But in the last decade, I would say that uh, Yandismas Zelenka's works have really come to the forefront uh, due to the, to the work of uh, certain ensembles, but also mm. musicologists. And we had already discovered Zelenka through a partnership with Frieder Bernius in the Stuttgart Kammerchorps. Some some years ago, uh, one of our first recordings, choral recordings, was uh, Zelenka Mass, mm-hmm. Missa Dei Fili. And so I've decided to incorporate a section of that Mass uh, 
because we've been doing Zelenka as, as a regular part of our diet throughout the years. Right. And he's just wonderfully wild and wacky and extrovert and and very bohemian in all mm -hmm. senses of the word. So uh, that's the, the Zelenka portion of the meal. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a composer who I only discovered a couple of years ago, uh, Stefani, Agostino oh, Stefani. Through Bartoli's recordings. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I had found the name listed uh, through a box library, uh, what he collected and, mm -hmm. and things that were going on in Europe. And this man, this composer's name kept coming up of a, as an important opera uh, composer that Handel had met him in Hanover mm -hmm. before he went to Italy. More than Bach. Oh, yeah. yes. Since Handel and Bach never uh, met no, each exactly. other. It's a bridge. Yes, it's mm. a wonderful bridge. So I discovered, as you say, through Cecilia Bartoli's work and her um, that first recording mm -hmm. that she made of his of his works, it opened a whole new world of incredible music by a composer who has just had disappeared. Mm. And, you know, that's the, that's the exciting thing about what we do. Um, there are so many composers out there that we either, we don't see the iceberg at all, it's just a few mm. inches underneath the surface, or we just see the tip of the iceberg and we say, oh yes, well, they wrote this piece. Yeah. And but history was an accurate judge. Yes. As opposed to a very <laughs> random and accidental one yeah, in some cases. Yeah. And so uh, we find now, you know, the Boston Early Music Festival is putting on Stefani operas on a regular basis now. Mm. People are rediscovering the work. He was well known enough, as, as Bartoli points out, not only as a, a composer and musician, but as a diplomat. Mm -hmm. as as a spy, if you will, with all the intrigue going on at the time, mm -hmm. uh, was given a very uh, important post by the Pope in the Catholic Church as well. So an incredibly colorful and interesting character as well. And so there is a piece uh, quite late on in his career. Uh, in London, there was a group called the Concert of Ancient Music, mm -hmm which uh, is what the Academy of Ancient Music has taken their name from. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of uh, nobles who, decide, who are dilettantes and lovers of, of Baroque music, because by the 1780s and 90s, we've got Haydn and you know, all of this going on, but they are still interested in Handel and Rameau. Mm -hmm. And they decide to have a society that puts on concerts. Mm -hmm. And these concerts included the big Handel commemorations in the 1780s and 90s at Westminster Abbey, for example, that Haydn visited when he heard uh, the Handel uh, oratorios sung and played by 500 people, which inspired him to do his two oratorios creation in seasons. Mm -hmm. So this organization is there already uh, uh, in existence in the 1740s, and they make Stefani... Um, an honorary uh, president of uh -huh. the society. And as a gift, he gives them uh, a Stabat Mater setting for six voices. Huh. Again, it's a work that sat, you know, in the, the Royal Collection or British Museum Collection for, for centuries, if you will. 
and only because of this interest through Cecilia Bartoli and other musicologists mm. uh, has it come to light. So we're performing mm-hmm. uh, excerpts again, a taste of Stefani. Right. So as you can see, we're dealing with you know here's a an Italian composer who's at a German court, mm-hmm. which is very French in style. Uh, and then we've got Handel in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Rameau just being French, as he should be, <laughs> as he expects to <laughs> Indeed, be. Indeed, <laughs> as the drum says. Yes, and then we've got the, the uh, Bohemian Zelenka in the Glittering Court at Dresden. Right. So... That's, that's a, our first It's concert. a mix. That's the first one. We'll come back to the others a little later sure. on, but let's digress a bit. Um, the the choir the choir itself is usually what between twenty and twenty four voices it's over the time. Cor- the core is twenty two. Twenty two. And then I have a pool of singers mm-hmm. as well that I've auditioned uh, if we need to expand as we did last season when we did Beethoven 9, mm-hmm. and we went up to uh, 34, I think, mm-hmm. 32 or 34, um, then I can draw on these singers mm-hmm. who I know in terms of their abilities in the style and their abilities to join in and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, be part of what's already there, mm-hmm. rather than the idea of uh, a completely pickup choir. Yeah. So, who in the core is also celebrating significant anniversaries this time? Well, how far back do some of your singers go? Uh, many years for some. Peter Mann, for example, mm-hmm. has been around for not since the beginning, but but very early on he joined in, and he is still there. We have had his son sing in the choir as well, Andrew Mann, who has mm-hmm. now a a career um, in as, Europe. As a, as a baritone. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. Amazing singer. And, um, and he joined us before he then went off to Europe to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Pepper, uh, who is a member of the Toronto Consort, as well, yeah. was singing with us for almost since the beginning and for many years. He retired from, from the choir, Toffensey Choir, a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so we have this mix of people who have been there for quite some time. We have uh, newer singers who have been there for many years as well. We have younger singers in uh, student university level students Mm -hmm. um, who join us, who have a a penchant for this music, who may stay with us for a season or two and then decide to go off to Europe to study Mm -hmm. and then come back again. Mm We have people uh, maybe moving to Toronto from one of the other major centers that has a professional choir like Procoro or Vancouver Chamber Choir right. or SMAM um, that are moving to Toronto and know of us. So it used to be, if you can understand, that one was drawing from the talent that one had in the Toronto area. But, but now you're a magnet. We are. I think we really are, and, and we're... In a way, even though we're a specialist choir, uh, I think we can rank ourselves with the other professional chamber choirs with, throughout Canada. And again, in terms of sensibilities, you know you can draw from singers from Vancouver or Procoro mm-hmm. or Eisler uh, singers, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's this wonderful melange of different ages, different talents. 
there are people whose uh, day jobs are not in singing, who mm-hmm. are lawyers and and doctors and teachers, and publicists. Who, yep, and who mm-hmm. make their career singing, in uh, doing small ensemble work and solo work and singing in Tafelsuk Chamber Choir. Right. Speaking of the uh, of the choir uh, elsewhere, I was struck this last this last year. Tafel brought out Beethoven Nine. Yes. Uh, with Bruno Bruno Weil, and obviously that's a that's the choir's chance to really yes. enter into that as a kind of grace note, if you like. On yes, that, it was a wonderful combination process. of a long project. And then you, but then you also went off as a choir to do Beethoven Nine with. Nagano, uh, Nagano yes. and the uh, Montreal. Yes. So, so tell me about that well, and that maybe w- the difference and why and how. Yeah, that was an interesting. It is an, an interesting uh, relationship that we have with uh, with Kent Nagano. Um, it started with his interest of uh, doing a Bach B minor Mass with us, right, uh, in Montreal, and. He originally had the idea of doing a joint project that would include members of the OSM and Tafmusik. And we kind of quickly had to point out that one plays at one pitch and one plays at mm-hmm. the other and one's on one. So it ended up being him directing Tafmusik Orchestra and Choir mm-hmm. in Montreal as part of the OSM series, um, doing the Bach B minor Mass. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he brought he brought a sensibility uh, as as only great conductors can of the larger picture, mm-hmm. and and it was fascinating to see his view, his take, especially of, with a a conductor who doesn't work with period instrument ensembles mm-hmm. uh, very much at all. There are other there are other conductors you can think of like Abado. Mm-hmm. or Rattle, who have, have worked on that. But he obviously had this interest in period instruments, period performance, the sounds that were coming out, the things that he maybe wanted to achieve, mm-hmm. the same way as Bruno Weil did uh, when, when our collaboration started uh, with him many years ago. So that was the first project we did, and then there was this... Uh, this uh, love affair, if you will, between uh, Nagano and Tafmusik, he invited the orchestra to do uh, a festival in Rieti in, that he was directing in Italy. Uh-huh. And uh, that went on for a few seasons. And then uh, they were opening the Maison Symphonique. Mm-hmm. And he wanted, if you will, a leaner, meaner choir uh, than than the OSM chorus at that point. And he'd heard, he'd worked with our choir. We got on, there was something very simpatico about the way we approached choral and vocal music. I find, I, I think if we let him loose with, with, a, with a choir like ours, it, he'd have it would be like a, a kid in the IKEA ballroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he really loves working with voices. What do you think it is that that the choir has? Is it more of a sense of line, or what do you uh, think it is? Technique, uh, clarity, mm-hmm. um, uh, ca- contrapuntal clarity, right. all of these things 
that a chamber choir can, can offer, especially a specialist one, as opposed to what he would normally be getting in terms of a symphonic chorus or an opera company chorus. Mm. It's a different animal. They, yeah. they serve different purposes. In the same way as Bach is a different animal when you reduce the, the forces, the, the, yes. the forces yeah. in the, yeah. the massing. With so, the one to a part as the kind of extreme yeah. version of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So with the opening of this new, uh, wonderful new hall in uh, Concert Hall, the home of the Montreal Symphony, he asked whether I would create a choir that combined uh, Tafelmusik with members of the OSM. Uh-huh. And so I created a choir of 70-something. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yes, we were part of the opening uh, performances uh, performances and ceremony mm-hmm. of this new hall doing Beethoven 9 mm-hmm. and other works as well on, on the program. So that was very exciting. He's come back more recently to do uh, Beethoven Mass in C major with right. us uh, on our series. Another, it was a, a wonderful experience. And every time he comes... Uh, the choir loves working with him and and uh, you know I'll be warming up the choir rehearsing them and doing some finesse work and he's sitting he, the choir will kind of nod at me because he's sitting <laughs> in the in the seats in the audience seats and, and, and sort of taking in what, what we're doing and he's come right. up to me and says well, how do you do that right. <laughs> so That's it's great it's, yeah it's a wonderful relationship mm-hmm. I hope it uh, certainly hope it continues it, it's always interesting to me how choirs as chor- choral si- singers, yep. choristers, who in a choir like yours, the demands on them musically are as great technically and from every other aspect as for any musician. Yes, but instrumentalist. Instrumental- don't, don't say musicians, that'll get the choristers really... In- exactly, <laughs> and, th- and that's a beautiful example yeah. of, of the very prejudice that I'm yep. talking yep. about yep. Um, as a slip from, from yep. me. The whole the whole issue of choirs and where they fall into the the organization of how musicians are seen and what regulates what they do and all the rest of it is yeah. a very interesting one. It is, and I don't know how you change how you change attitudes, how you change the the structure, the animal that exists mm-hmm. in terms of even the concept of singing chorally, singing in choirs, singing in a, an ensemble, because and I've been harping and my colleagues harp on this uh, for decades that, uh, and I'm, it's basically the same in terms of instrumentalists. In our institutions, universities, conservatories, you're pushed from very early on to focus on being a soloist, mm-hmm. right? Just like you're going to be prima ballerina when you grow up. Mm-hmm. There's no no cushioning for the fact that you might end up in the corps de ballet or that you will end up, you know, you, you learn all these concertos and you're pushed to be a soloist, solo violinist, and, and the competition is mm. ridiculous, right? And we know that only the smallest percentage of anyone studying, anyone trying to achieve this, will make solo careers. Mm -hmm. So the idea that ensemble 
being involved in an ensemble, whether it's a choir or an orchestra, um, or a chamber orchestra, chamber choir, is somehow demeaning and somehow second rate, is unfortunate. Because uh, there is so much to be learned about one's craft through playing and singing with others. Mm-hmm. And you just have to to hear four opera soloists singing on stage who have never sung in an ensemble to hear how they're going full tilt and there is no cohesion really mm-hmm. of, uh, in terms of what they are as an ensemble and it's put up to the, the task of the conductor to kind of do something about this. But, but this lack of uh, education in, for instance, in singing, how, how many people at university level learn uh, to sing a Monteverdi Madrigal or have even touched a singing a Monteverdi Madrigal or Gesualdo or, or uh, you know, it's, it's a whole world that hones your skills in terms of ensemble, mm-hmm. of, of, of intonation, of give and take, of color, mm-hmm. of text playing off each other. Um, and it doesn't have to be governed by, you know, a director. One can learn this stuff as you do in a string quartet mm-hmm. as well. So that I find in terms of our education is already, and it's, I think it's worldwide. Uh, I always think the grass is greener when I look at Europe and say, well, but, you know, you look at the, the amount of professional mm-hmm. chamber choirs as opposed to what we have in North America or look at the States. Can you name right away off the tip of your tongue uh, an American chamber choir? Mm. Right? And and Canada? Yes. Mm. But then we have also, I think the North American model was built in the 19th century through choral societies. So Handel and Haydn. Right. And ev- all the great orchestras ended up with a symphonic chorus mm-hmm. to do the large-scale oratorios where you had massive performances of, of these great works. Mm-hmm. Pomp and of so, the circumstance. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the attitude was a different animal. It was an amateur mm. animal. Um, and so the idea that one could make one's living from right. creating a chamber choir mm-hmm. of professional level the organization, the structure hasn't been, oops, hasn't been there right. to support that. Right. And so and there's been this rift. a bit of an attitude that it's an amateur thing and you should do it for the love of it. Exactly. Yeah. I've heard that many times. So yeah. it's, it's, it permeates all levels mm-hmm. of, of, of our attitudes and of our training and, and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say it's, it's there as well for instrumentalists, uh, but it shows up much more in in the choral world, yeah. and therefore there's this disparity as well in terms of pay. Yeah. So there we have that animal. But uh, you know, um, I've got to say that that despite that, we have so much talent. Uh, just look at this country and and the amount of choral activity that's going on, whether it's professional semi-professional, mm. amateur, it's, it's terribly exciting mm. to open up uh, you know, a page and see what's going on across mm. Canada, 
uh, chorally. Um, we have our flagship uh, choirs. Um, we have we have in ev- nearly in every community there is something going on yeah. in terms of singing and singing with others. Yeah, and I think that's that's uh, something that may be more unique, perhaps in Canada. Mm. In terms of our interest, maybe it comes from, you know, just anything from out west, Mennonite, the Mennonite tradition. That might be it's sort of like of the it, Welsh, too. the whole Welsh yeah. idea of yeah. choral organizations singing together. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm very proud to be part of that. Yeah. With Ralph Music. Complete change attack. Um, the you mentioned Simon Rattle um, way back in our conversation. Yes. Um, which made me think of the St. Matthew that he's just done in in uh, New York again with the uh, Rundfunk yes. Chor. Yeah. Um, staged, yep. memorized. Got me thinking of the huge strides that Tafel has made in the work that Alison Mackay has done, particularly of memorized off-book yes. for the orchestra itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. What about the choir? Has there been talk of the choir off book? There, there has been uh, certainly discussion about programs, and actually we did one of Allison's um, uh, programs uh, to do with Bach in Leipzig. Right. Um, where, because of the choreography, uh, the choir in that particular piece uh, had to memorize. Uh-huh. Um, I'm I'm certainly I mean th- there's ongoing discussions about uh projects that that Alison might uh conceive of or but you know I find it a little um a little intriguing uh that someone like John Elliot Gardner will insist that his choir memorize mm-hmm. a St. Matthew Passion or a, a Monteverdi Vespers mm-hmm. um and yet the orchestra has music in front of them. Right. And often he will have a score in front of him. Now, mm. I'm, I'm not saying he, he doesn't know and it's not great because works. It's not because there's a dramaturgy involved. It, it, well, there should be as much dramaturgy in an orchestra mm-hmm. without its music as you've seen with, yeah. with soft music perf- performances. There is this element of freedom and a connection mm-hmm. not only with the audience but with each other that um, is there but it, mm. it also you have the music there so mm. yes um, but I have found uh, if I've, I've been to performances where that has been imposed mm. um, especially if it's not something that is a regular diet right uh, one finds there's an unease listening for dear life <laughs> uh, yeah and, and people just it, it's the same odd phenomenon that occurs with uh, choirs that have to read a choral score right. rather than a piano score, a piano vocal score. So for our listeners, I should explain that a piano vocal score is kind of the regular reduction that one gets of big choral works where mm-hmm. you have the voice parts mm-hmm. all there and then you have a piano reduction of the orchestral so that the singers can not only see what the other uh, singers are doing, the different voice parts, but also what the orchestra is doing, especially the bass line of the orchestra. Right. And so in the bars that they're not singing, they see what's, what's the connective material between their, that and their next phrase. But then there are things like choral scores, 
which eliminate the accompaniment entirely. And right. all you get is uh, the, the voice parts. Yeah. And then if they stop singing, you get five bars rest with nothing. Mm-hmm. And then they're back in. And really, I find there's a fish out of water element in that. And yet, orchestra players deal with it all the time. They deal with a single line. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, I think it has to do with the way we've been trained. Because, of course, in Bach's day, 17th, 18th century, singers all had their individual music. Right. They didn't know what the other people were singing. They didn't use uh, a score, a vocal score as such. They had their own part. They listened. Right. I think, in a way, uh, metaphorically, their ears were bigger. Mm. Uh, even in the 19th century, when you consider that people would go to a concert to review it, they didn't have the printed score in front of them. They listened, and so if it said that this symphony was in C major, and then it started in a remote key, mm. they could they, they could, could sense that, and they could tell and appreciate. Yes, and modulations, mm. and and that's why you know in symphonies people did the repeats mm. at the at the first ending. You went back so that someone could listen again and mm. take in what they missed the first time. So the idea of of analysis and and uh, the fine tuning, if you will, of ears, I think was much more keen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, you go back into the seventeenth century, you get music where there's no bar lines. Mm-hmm. You're reading Italian uh, music or early German seventeenth uh, century music where there are no bar lines. So what happens when you get lost? Mm-hmm. Where do you go back to? There's no bar numbers, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a different way of sensing what's going on around you, of rhythm, of phrases, of a harmonic arrival point. Mm-hmm. And we see that now and again there's glimmers. I know we're on a completely different subject here yeah. from the choir. <laughs> so maybe we need to edit this out. But I find it fascinating, for example, Dudamel and the Simon Bolivar Orchestra came right. a few years ago when he got the... Um, well, the the Glenn Gould Prize, Apreo, the, Apreo yeah, got, uh, yeah. The Glenn Gould Prize, so yeah. Uh, the orchestra was there, and I was able to come to uh, to a rehearsal with my students, conducting students, and the, it wasn't the case where Dudamel would say, uh, "Bar number such and such, we're going to start there," or rehearsal number such and such. Um, he would start. Uh, let's start at the oboe solo, huh. and everyone in the orchestra knew what he was talking about and where that was. Right. And it was like split second and bang, everyone was there. So the way they have been trained to listen to one another mm-hmm. and know the music inside out, not just their own mm-hmm. part, but how their part is involved in everything else. Mm-hmm. That's something I, I, I love working with choirs and why working with soft music is so exciting because the, the understanding, the relationship, the dance that occurs, mm-hmm. the choreography in counterpoint, Yeah is something that uh, I find terribly exciting, the way you read a score. In a, in a way, that goes right back to your first question about violists and conductors. Yeah. Being in the middle of the music and, and seeing that, that incredible relationship, and then you add words to that, mm-hmm. right? It's not only just notes mm-hmm. and, and dynamics and phrases. Mm-hmm. You then have that, uh, that the words which are being illuminated by by this music and are intensified by it and how do you bring that out how do you bring out the word what do you have to do to the word death mm. uh, tot in German or, or Liebe 
or any of these words that when we speak them, we already clothe them in, in the emotion that is connected with them. With their tonality. Yes. Yeah. And their essence. Exactly. So how do you bring that out when you're singing notes, right? We're going to need to <laughs> wrap it up. Wrap it. So coming <laughs> back to violists is a great uh, wrap since uh, your final concert this year is uh, Mozart's C minor, C mass. minor, which is you and the orchestra fully fully joined yes, uh, it's a in the work by another great violist. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's such an incredible work in terms of, again, a composer who's looking back, yeah. uh, inspired by Bach's uh, B minor mass, inspired right. by Handel's oratorios and the counterpoint. So mm. it's a, a fascinating work to dive into again. And I've, uh, I've, I've sort of sunk into that work a number of times now. And it's always, I think it, Again, it was a great opportunity in this anniversary season to, again, pay tribute to this amazing work. Mm -hmm. And in February, you have a program devoted to Bach. Completely devoted to Bach. To and it's the heart a, of it's it a It's called the Bach Tapestry. And it explores uh, the works, the choral works, or elements of the choral works that we don't know. Again, it's the tip of the iceberg. We get to hear the great cantatas. Mm -hmm. We know the great choruses. But of the, the hundreds of cantatas that he did write, mm -hmm. uh, well, over a over hundred, right? And, and the, the, the cycles, uh, the church cycles that he composed, there are so many hidden gems, mm -hmm. not only in entire cantatas, but in arias and choruses. So what I did was basically go through the cantatas and go, whoa, okay, that, that's, that's got to be on my... I have right. a little album, you know, on, on my iTunes uh, where I drag, uh, you know, this, this is interesting Bach. Okay. And, and so I've fashioned a, uh, a concert that weaves these uh, disparate elements, these choruses from cantatas, some of which you've never, probably never heard yeah. of or heard played, uh, we only get that opportunity through, you know, John Elliot Gardner's uh, a complete works of these things, and then we are weaving in instrumental works as well in between, a true tapestry, a true tapestry, and to mix a metaphor, curated rather than just shuffled. Yes, yes, very much so. Lovely. Something I love doing as well. Look forward to. Uh, what sounds like a, a lovely season. Congratulations on getting so this far. And thanks for this chat. It's Lots been really of fun. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.